Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The pandemic left a devastating impact on K-12 learning last year. As school resumes and teachers work especially hard to address the gaps, We're reminded of students who always face challenges because of learning differences. Selma Ridgeway has spent decades advocating for students, chronicled in her book, Creative Learners. Today, we'll hear about her stories of inspiration and success from those with dyslexia, ADD, and other learning differences. Institutes of higher learning will receive major gifts from the Atlanta-based artist Steve Allen. Later in the program, he'll tell us about his foundation's multi-million dollar gift initiative to HBCUs. First, This Sunday evening, the Bremen Museum is celebrating its 25th anniversary with poetic flair. Singer-songwriter Perla Batala will perform a special live stream program in the House of Cohen, a concert tribute to her mentor, Leonard Cohen. She joins us now via Zoom. Perla Batala, welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. So nice to be here. Well, it's great to talk with you. You sang and toured with Leonard Cohen for several years. When did you first discover the poet and his music? Well, I think, you know, I was aware of Leonard Cohen kind of peripherally. I had friends who were talking at the time about the album that Jennifer Warrens had done as a tribute to him. And then so there was a lot of talk about, oh, yeah, he's the guy that in the 60s, you had songs like Suzanne, and I knew those from Judy Collins, you know, repertoire. And so I was very interested in the idea that this poet was now being celebrated again with this album. And coincidentally, I get a phone call. Would you like to audition for Leonard Cohen? Oh, my. 
Oh my. Yes. And, and I had not even listened to Jennifer's album. I hadn't done any of my homework. So of course, immediately I run to Tower Records and I find every cassette tape that I can find because it was over 30 years ago. So cassette tapes were still a thing back then. And I thought, wow, I listened to a lot of his work and thought, oh, well, he's exceptional. This is a really special artist and a unique songwriter and singer, of course, because uh, his voice was also very unique and very different. And I was thrilled at the thought of, of just getting to meet this person. I didn't even think about getting the gig or anything beyond just meeting him. I was so enthralled with his work and taken with his poetry because I grew up in a Spanish speaking household and uh, my father was a singer. A lot of the music that we listened to was poetry. The Spanish language itself is poetry. So it just took me back to my deepest roots and I was so excited. Well, you're being rather modest here. How did you come to his attention that you even got the call? Well, <laughs> I think it was just meant to be, honestly, because they were auditioning everyone in town. I was hearing through all my friends about, oh, they auditioned for this big tour that Leonard Cohen, uh, my girlfriend, Julie Christensen, was already hired by Cohen. My name came up way late in the process. It was two weeks before they were about to launch this tour, this giant three-month tour in Europe. And I just showed up and, oh, it was so funny. I'm at the studio, you know, because after listening to his music all night long, I decided that the most important thing uh, I had to decide was what was I going to wear for this audition? Of course. You know, first, first impressions and everything. I just really uh, thought that was very important. So I picked my wardrobe. I was so centered. I've never in my life been this centered for an audition. Usually I hate auditions. They're nerve wracking. And uh, it's just a crazy way to, to meet anybody. But I walk into the studio. I meet Roscoe Beck. He shakes my hand. He said, first things first, I just want you to meet Leonard. He's coming out from the rehearsal hall. And I see this figure walking toward me. And we look at each other, <laughs> our eyes lock, and we start to just smile and giggle as he, of course, approaches me. And Leonard Cohen is dressed in black from head to toe. And I am dressed in white from head to toe. <laughs> he takes my hand and he said, darling, this is a match made in heaven. Oh, <laughs> oh you're the white to his black, the light to his dark. Well, how many years in total were you with him? Well, we were good friends till the end, but we toured, you know, he stopped touring after the 93 tour. So, I mean, it was about 10 years that we worked together. And anytime he was working on something, he would call me in and talk about vocals or ideas or whatever. He, he just would love to have me sit in the room while he was working. And that was always fun for me to watch his process. I'll bet. Yeah. I'm curious about the structure of the program if the music is chronological, if you have theatrical elements or an overarching narrative, will you tell us how this concert unfolds? 
Yes, I do like to tell stories. And I think a lot of that comes from my culture. My dad was a storyteller and Leonard, of course, oh, wonderful storyteller and and on stage. He didn't do this in the last few years of touring, I noticed. But when we were touring together in 88 and then again in 93, he told the most incredible stories and he would have people just laughing, you know, falling in the aisles uh, laughing. So I take my memories, there's no order, maybe there there might be, but that's not a a conscious decision on my part. Also, you know, I can't sing every single Leonard, there are some songs I cannot sing, they're just a song that I sing has to be something that it sits deep within me. And so it takes a while for me to decide any song that I'm going to sing. I do tell stories between the songs and I just things that, you know, reminiscences that I have or memories. And there are stories that I remember that Leonard used to tell. And I try my best (laughs) to tell them as beautifully as he told them. There's just sort of a storytelling and song, you know, approach that I have. An informal one, it sounds like. Exactly. I've never written anything down. And it's just what I do remember of my experiences with him and our friendship. For many listeners, Leonard Cohen's most famous song is probably Hallelujah. Right. It's been covered by everyone from Bob Dylan to Bono to Bon Jovi. Perla, what makes this song a classic? I don't know, uh, and neither did Leonard, because it wasn't his favorite song of his and he has said it many times, but I know that it's, it captures the hearts of people and, and it, it's not necessarily even the lyrics. It, Cause I know people that want to play this song at their wedding. And I just say, just take a look at the lyrics. I don't think you want this at a wedding, but it's a simple chordal structure. And it's one that builds your emotion and it touches on your emotions. So I get that. And I think it was one of his more beautiful and simple and almost classical in a way, his melody. Mm-hmm. I do think that that has a lot to do with it. And that refrain that makes everyone want to join in. Exactly. And anyone can sing it in any language. It's com- a completely a multi-language chorus. Indeed. <laughs> so... My favorite Leonard Cohen song is Dance Me to the End of Love. Yes. I know your father was Mexican. Mm-hmm. Your mother is Argentinian. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about how you infuse your mestiza culture into Cohen's music with Dance Me to the End of Love as an example? Is that? Yes. That's oh not my un- gosh. an unreasonable demand on my part. It is, oh, absolutely not. And I love to talk about this because uh, my father suffered a lot from racism. He came to the U.S., he joined the army to gain citizenship, and in the army had constant assaults on him about his race. And my father actually grew to be a racist. You know, I was always stunned at some of the things my father said, even as a very little girl. And I just, I was so confused because I would look at my father and say to myself, you know, but he's 
Afro. My father is actually like African. He was very dark, had African hair. He had kinky hair. I knew he was Mexican. And I just said, you know, he's got Afro blood. He's got Afro-Mexican blood. And as the years went on, I just knew it. I just knew that. And I also knew that I was Jewish. I just knew that. So of course, thank goodness for, you know, the, these genetic testing now, I could do it through the mail and confirm my thoughts that I was not only African, but that I was Jewish as well. My mother is a Hungarian Jew. They came from Hungary to Argentina. And my mother never mentioned her, her Jewish roots at all. And of course, my father, Afro-Mexican, because there was an African slave port very close to where he was from. And Leonard's favorite language was Spanish. And that's the thing we had in common. That was the bond that, that we formed early on was this love of the Spanish language. So when I decided to do my tribute to Leonard, I said, I'm going to take some of these songs and translate them into Spanish. And he was delighted with how it all worked out. You know, the, the music just, if I already thought Cohen was deep and profound in the English language, in Spanish, it took it to a new level, an entirely different level. And so anyway, I did, I did dance me to the end of love. And in that song, it's not only, it is a, a profoundly gorgeous lyric, but it also has that dance element. It's the horror, it's Greek, it's, it's so, it's folk, it's folk music. And the band, the musicians tend to be, you know, very, very like in their heads about music. And they're like, well, this is just really people that don't know Cohen. Well, they're just like, this is very simple. Like, how can this be something that you're putting in your repertoire? It's just so simple. And I sing the song and people go crazy for Dance Me. It is a definite crowd pleaser. And I think it touches them on a very deep level. Understandably. Earlier, you mentioned how he would have audiences laughing, you know, rolling in the aisles. Yes. This does not match with his nickname. In fact, he <laughs> joked about it in a 2006 interview in the Washington Post. Leonard Cohen said, Google despair and melancholy, and my name comes up. <laughs> Why did he get the title of Godfather of Gloom? My belief about that is that people aren't willing to go too deep into a lyric to find the humor or just if you go across the board, you know, you just think most humans just take whatever road is the easier road, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you have a, a small window to either approve or disapprove of something. And I think with poetry or with Shakespeare or with anything that's important or great art, it takes a moment, you know, and you have to be willing to take a moment to listen to Leonard. And the more I listen to the same song or the more I sing the same Leonard Cohen song, it evolves with me, it, it evolves as literature. It's constantly living and breathing. And that is what great art is. You have to 
and as as an observer of it you have to invest a little time in it i think so there's there's great depth but do you think the nickname was accurate in terms of the pervasiveness of gloom you know I think that was a lazy writer who did that. Uh, uh, you know, it was a lazy writer that came up with that. And I, I get that kind of writing because I think it's, it can be very funny. And I think a writer just decided that they were going to put a label on him and, and they thought it was clever. That's what, that's what my feeling is. And Leonard himself thought it was funny. So <laughs> yeah, that says so much about him. Yes. And it tells you that he was just a man with a great sense of humor. And I have to say that I laughed more in Leonard's presence than, you know, than I did in Mel Brooks's presence when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> that is saying a lot because yes. that he, he is my gold standard. Mm-hmm. We've talked about two of Leonard Cohen's most famous songs. In the House of Cohen concert you perform, are there songs you wish were better known? And are you performing any of those in the House of Cohen? I think I am performing quite a few of his lesser known songs. You know, the Bremen concert, I could only choose whatever fit into my uh, time constraint but like take this waltz oh my goodness that's not a song that a lot of people know about but for Leonard it was his tribute to Federico Garcia Lorca the Spanish poet who Leonard credits with inspiring Leonard to be a poet in the first place and and Leonard took a poem that was Lorca's the little uh, Viennese waltz and lovingly translated it and respectfully translated it to this lyric that is so stunning. Yeah, so Take This Waltz is one of my all-time favorites. And, and, you know, to sing it in Spain is just life-changing. I've done that many times, and it's, it's very exciting. So there's that one. If It Be Your Will is such a beautiful prayer of it's very Zen in a way because it's just acceptance of everything that's going on. And I also feel like his lyrics are very constant. They still mean as much now as, as when he wrote it. Suzanne, I mean, I know a lot of people are familiar with Suzanne, but to me that that song just stays relevant. You know, it's, it's so beautiful. And I find that to be the truth with a lot of Leonard's work. I know that Leonard Cohen was a marvelous mentor and friend to you over the decades. Mm-hmm. Perla, is there one piece of advice or nugget that will always remain with you? Oh, gosh, there's so many, but I remember early on, after the first tour, and I'd never done anything like this, going on a tour where you're just constantly moving I didn't even have a passport when Leonard, you know, said, well, you've got the job. You better be ready to leave in two weeks. I didn't have a passport. My mo- While I was in rehearsal, my mother had to go and get my passport for me. And yeah, that was before 9-11, obviously. And I was unaware of the kind of work 
and how brutal it is just touring uh, it's brutal on your body it's brutal on one emotionally and we were joking after the tour was over and i just said leonard there's got to be an easier way to make a living this is really rough this is so rough and he said well darling you know you'll know when you have your no options because there's a point where you don't choose it it chooses you Singer-songwriter Perla Batala, her virtual concert in the House of Cohen will stream live from the Bremen Museum this Sunday, August 15th. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... The Atlanta-based artist Steve Allen shares details on his foundation's sizable gift initiative to HBCUs. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Artists live to create, yet living solely off their creative work is not easy. The renowned artist Steve R. Allen wants to change that with his new gifting initiative to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Mr. Allen joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an, it's an honor. What motivated you to create this initiative? Actually, it just sort of came as an idea as I was driving back from North Carolina. Well, I went to an HBCU too, but my mother went to Shaw University and we were doing something with a portrait of her that I had done that I was gifting to the university. And the idea just came. Uh, One of the things is uh, I was inspired by uh, a gentleman some years ago uh, who wanted to uh, give a collection uh, to HBCUs, but we weren't in a position to. And so uh, the idea came to me to spread out the collection, shall we say. So that as well as HBCUs having ownership of some of our cultural treasures, shall I say, prompted me uh, to do it. My mother and my brother, Arthur, uh, really made it possible for me to paint. I went to work one day. I used to be a uh, copier technician. I was the Xerox man, shall we say. And uh, (laughs) 
I went to work one morning and the boss wasn't talking right and I gave him the job back. And I mentioned it to mama and Skeet. That's what we called it, Skeet. And uh, they really for years supported me and made it possible for me to create. He was, uh, you know, like Vincent Van Gogh's brother, uh, Theo, I think was his name, supported him all those years. My brother and my mother did the same for me so that I was able to sit here and create this work. Well, now you've launched this multi-million dollar HBCU gifting initiative. What will this gift provide Atlanta HBCUs? It will give them and uh, the young people, and some not so young, an opportunity to uh, see some of this work up close and personal, shall we say. Uh, also, I live not far from the AU Center, and uh, we have discussed my doing some uh, symposiums and conferences and possibly some in-person classes uh, with the young people so that they can see that in the uh, art field that it's possible to go from being born in a one-room shack, which I was, to having your work in the uh, greatest museum in the world, the Smithsonian. Now, from what I understand, your gifting involves your presenting the colleges with your own artwork that has been featured in the Smithsonian National Museum. Yes, I have seven artifacts in the Smithsonian. Four of my original paintings are part of the founding and permanent collection. They uh, acquired those images back in 2013, even before the uh, building was complete. And so what we did was created a museum edition of five pieces of the works. And that's what I'm gifting to the HBCUs because uh, you know many people will never get to Washington. And even if they do, they wouldn't all be displayed uh, on exhibition at the same time. So what I've done is uh, done this collection, each one, Shaw will get one of uh, the AU Center, which is, of course is the first uh, to get it so that uh, they're all there and we can discuss it and study it and do all that all in one place. In addition to the artworks that you are donating, will there be talks or lectures around equity and, and the business side of art? Yes, that was one thing over the years that I've noticed. It was just glaring, the lack, the underrepresentation of artists in the diaspora. And so, you know, with auctions, Sotheby's, this, that, the other. There are so much that I learned about the art business, not just the wonderful work itself, but also is being used actually as assets and funding mechanisms for many, many projects. I mean, mega millions of dollars of uh, projects or collections financed just by art. And this is one thing, it was almost like the world is secret but we were able to work on that and, and learning more and more every day and becoming a part of it. Great. Now, you have served as the official artist for eight Olympic Games, spanning from 1996 at the Atlanta Summer Olympics to the 2012 London 
Olympic Summer Games. When creating a design for the Olympics, were you given certain guidelines or did you have free range? I've been very fortunate. I have free range to do whatever I want to do. Of course, it's the Olympics. So that's the only consideration uh, that I had to think about. And so just whatever would come, I tried to cover the Olympics, the broad spectrum of things going on in the actual games as much as I could. I've actually been to eight Olympic games personally, and it's just a fantastic experience, just fantastic. Uh, Being part of the official uh, Olympic delegation, I was able to meet quite a few of the current and and legendary Olympians. It's it's just wonderful to be associated with it. Kind of like your own gold medal? My own gold medal, yeah. And and as a matter of fact, two of my Olympic pieces, the one that I created for Athens in 2004 and uh, Torino uh, in 2006 for the Winter Games, are part of the uh, founder and permanent collection in the Smithsonian. That, to me, Again, well, that is a gold medal. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> hmm. Yes. How did you decide what each of the Olympic artworks would encompass? What What were you looking to represent? Like any other piece I do, I have the idea, and I just let it evolve. It sort of presents itself as I'm working. I like it today and I look at it tomorrow, and I don't like it. And so I'll pan over some things and move some things around. And it's just a process of discovery for me as well. I don't know where it's going. I just allow itself to to present itself. I know you started the Steve R. Allen Foundation in 2008 to inspire and help young people with art. Yes. Is the foundation still in operation? It is still in operation. We had to cut back a little bit, of course, because of uh, COVID. But uh, we've done the programs in Brazil, and we've done it in uh, DR Congo, and, of course, here at home. And uh, even yesterday, we were actually, I had a phone call with Brazil where we are starting to gear back up. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, to be able to share, again, with the young people and for them to touch the flesh, so to speak. Uh, Most of the times, if they know anything about art or an artist, it's uh, from a museum, from a magazine or something, and there are very few opportunities to interact with uh, actual living and working artists. And so, uh, you know, not to, to pump myself up, but for them to be able to see someone like myself, because I was one of those little children at one time, it's, uh, is very important to me, and uh, hopefully it uh, inspires them, and they can reach out to me. I always leave my information with them. I just love that aspect of being an artist. In fact, I seem to be doing uh, leaning more towards that now, incorporating that, shall we say, with my creating, physically creating pieces. Coming back to the students at the HBCUs, when they see your artworks, these pieces by a renowned African-American artist in their own school. How do you hope they will respond? 
most of the time they they'll keep asking the question, you a real artist? <laughs> <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> okay. And so what I'll do is I will leave, uh, I will give them posters or whatnot for them to, to take with them. And also when we do some classes, we do a few things, I'm able to give them a few pointers. Sometimes they know I'm coming, they will have created pieces of art themselves to present to me. And that, that's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And again, I, I go back many times to the same place, you know, the next year or something like that. That's what I've been doing. That's what, again, what I'm looking forward to. Great. In 2016, President Obama cut the ribbon in the opening ceremony of the Smithsonian Institution, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. What was it like for you to join him on that historic day and have your work acquired by the museum? It's really like a blur. It's, you know, certain things that you don't ever expect to happen. The first thing being acquired by the museum, again, that was eight years ago now. And then in uh, uh, 2016, in fact, I had just returned from the, uh, from the Olympics in Rio. And the next week or so, I was in Washington for the event. To, to be in that circumstance is mind-blowing. Again, I'm still sort of wrapping my uh, mind around it. I know it happened. I know it. <laughs> It still sort of seems unreal. Mr. Allen, this has really been a pleasure. I thank you very much. Thank you so much. The artist Steve Allen. You can learn more about his foundation's multi-million dollar HBCU gifting initiative on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, author and educator Selma Ridgeway shares her experience shares her experience teaching students with learning differences. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. A great teacher can transform a child's life, and students of Selma Ridgeway are proof. For more than 30 years, the Atlanta-based educator specialized in working with students who learn differently, those with dyslexia, attention deficit disorder, and other challenges. The transition program Ms. Ridgeway administered at Woodward Academy in Atlanta is nationally recognized for its success and demonstrates that so-called learning disabilities are really just differences in the way we learn. Summer Ridgeway now has a book of stories from students, teachers, and parents Former mayor of Atlanta and Ambassador Andrew Young offers his story on the first page, showing that learning differences obviously have nothing to do with intellect or the potential for achievement. I asked Selma Ridgeway why she chose the title Creative Learners. 
As we read the stories that the individuals themselves wrote, what we heard over and over again was that they had to be creative in learning how to learn. And when things, the conventional instruction did not speak to them, they had to figure out what they had to do in order to be as successful as their peers. Early in the book, there appears the roster of poster children for creative learners led by Albert Einstein along with Thomas Edison. Nelson Rockefeller is often included. Henry Winkler has been a guest on our show a couple of times, and he co-authors a series of children's books targeted at children with dyslexia. Who is among the more recent examples of famous people who overcame learning differences to succeed at a high level? Richard Branson has done a lot uh, for the cause. He teamed up with Microsoft to produce the series Made by Dyslexia which is free to the public. So he, has, he is making a big contribution in advocating for dyslexics. Howard Schultz of Starbucks, and I did not know Steven Spielberg, of course, hearing about these famous high achievers. That doesn't necessarily comfort young children or their parents struggling with learning differences. There are shocking statistics you reveal about people with learning differences who end up in the criminal justice system. That's exactly right, um, Lois. The high percentage of the young people who drop out of school are struggling with reading. And if they are lucky enough to ever be tested along the way, it does reveal that most of them have some level or degree of dyslexia. We are thrilled that the Georgia legislature has passed the legislation to have young children in Georgia tested, and hopefully we can catch this and teach these children appropriately so that they don't become disenfranchised and drop out of the system. Mm. You state that you never wanted to write a book in your own words, but wanted to share the stories of others. Would you talk about the structure of the book? Yes, I would. And that is so true, um, Lois. When I was approached about writing a book, I said, I have nothing to say that someone else didn't teach me, but I will let individuals with whom I worked speak through their stories. For years, when your son and others crossed the stage at graduation, I wanted to stand up and shout to the heavens because I knew how hard those children had worked. I knew that their achievement deserved the highest of awards because they had not only mastered the material at a high level of competency, but they had also had to learn how to do it. And so as time would go on and I would speak to parents and they would talk about how well children were doing in uh, college, I would say, I've got, we've got to find a way to tell these stories. And you have some impressive endorsements. I think impressive is understating it no less than 
former mayor of Atlanta and Ambassador Andrew Young states how indebted he is to you for your work on behalf of different learners. These stories are very meaningful for people of all ages, but can be most helpful for those young students who so desperately need the recognition and the tools. How has technology helped students with learning differences? Oh, technology has revolutionized the life of a learning disabled child. In the very simplest beginning, is that they have spell check. One of the problems that most dyslexics face is they cannot learn to spell. And with the computer and every misspelled word being identified, it just opens up a whole new world for them. The book focuses on local schools and programs which have been innovative as well as successful teaching students with learning differences. And while the schools are in Atlanta, the transition program at Woodward Academy should serve as a national template. Please explain how the transition program works. The whole goal was to be able to take children who had gone through some intensive remediation at one of the special schools, like the Skank School or the Speech School, and bring them into Woodward Academy and give them a year or two maybe of special classes for transitioning them into the College Preparatory Mainstream Program, where they would work right along beside all of their non-disabled peers and be able to be successful. And the result? Outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. Every year, the school is nice enough to share with me the list of graduates, the colleges to which they go, and the amount of scholarship money they win. You mentioned three different styles of learning in the book. Would you describe them? Auditory learning, visual learning, and kinesthetic learning, or hands-on learning. Those are the three main types of learning. And one of the jobs that we had as educators uh, of these special students was to figure out which one was best for each student. In other words, most students, after a few years, can tell you which way they learn best, whether they'd rather hear the book read to them or they'd rather read it on their own, whether they'd rather do a science experiment to learn about the scientific principles or read about the scientific principles. And many of them like the combinations, but knowing which is the strongest learning mode for an individual enables the educator to capitalize on that. For example, vary projects that they might have to do. If they uh, are kinesthetic, then they would do a hands-on project where they would present something they had made with their hands. The uh, more visual learner, the one who likes to read, would write a nice paper. And the auditory learner would prepare a video of some kind. Hmm. What is neurolinguistic processing? That is the strategy that attempts to um, make sure that information is arriving to the brain in the most efficient way for that particular brain to process it. 
It is a fascinating thing to read about in the case of this student about how she knew if she sat in the front, preferably in the center, she not only could focus better on the instructor, but she eventually realized that if she sat a little farther to the right, if her eyes were gazing to the left, she processed the incoming information much better. Yes, Yes. that's right. There are some people who respond to that, and she was one of those individuals who did. And that just emphasizes the point, Lois, that one of our biggest jobs was to help these children learn how they learn best. Mm -hmm. Because once they have done that, then they can figure out how to manipulate those things that don't fit into that category naturally and master them without being having to struggle. What doesn't a test score reveal? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I I could spend another hour on that. <laughs> a test score does not reveal the internal desire, the internal drive, the internal determination to be successful. And so that's why I was so I would get so upset with the test scores. And you've got that whole chapter in there about the little girl who was denied the advanced classes because our test scores were never high enough. A test score in the first place is a snapshot at a given time on a given day. And it does not reveal the willingness to work. It does not reveal the uh, willingness to try different modalities, it does not reveal the actual ability of a child to learn. I found the chapter with the Navy SEAL especially interesting. You note that a self-help industry has mushroomed around notions of correcting weaknesses, but very little attention is paid to developing strengths. How did ADD help the aspiring SEAL? Well, (laughs) that's interesting. Um, He, like many ADD individuals, had a lot of energy. And he talks about that, how he and his buddies competed to see who could get the parachute folded up first or who could uh, master some skill in the pool first. So his tremendous amount of energy and and desire to expend that energy uh, led him to be a very competitive seal. Jane King and Barbara Dunbar are teachers whose essays are inspiring. And each has an interesting motto as well. Ms. King's was, they'll love me later. (laughs) Ms. Dunbar, at the end of every school year, would ask herself, would I want to be a student in my classroom? Why are these teachers extraordinary? They're extraordinary because, though they had somewhat different approaches, both of them were masters at helping the student understand that they were there to help them, that they were walking along beside them. 
They loved them. They cared for them unconditionally. And the student knew, even though they might be demanding and even though they might be, their task might be hard, the student knew that these people had their best interest at heart. And they knew that if they could master what these ladies were asking them to master, they would be okay. And it turned out to be so. I loved how Miss King illustrated that if a student was having difficulty reading some nonfiction, that she would tell them, turn it into a story with a plot. And the importance of achieving something every day, which could be as small as completing a homework assignment, was more important than a test score midterm or at the end of a semester. Right. That, that is such sound psychology. And you read books have been written on just that subject. And that is that the hardest job that we had was teaching in such a way and making sure that these individuals did not develop any ideas that they couldn't be successful. Keeping the growth mindset was very, very important. And that's why she broke down the task until every child could have a successful part of the whole. And as each child began to succeed in the small pieces, then the holes later came. But the, the self-confidence grew with each little piece, and that's so important. The schools mentioned in this book, the Atlantis Beach School, the Skank School, Woodward Academy, they are all superb for their work with creative learners. They are all private schools as well. How prevalent are programs for learning differences in public schools? Well, it's hard for me to answer how prevalent because they vary very much by systems and by um, districts and individual schools even as to the kinds of services that an individual child gets. Quite obviously, uh, the attention to the individual that a private school can give is much greater than the attention that the public school can give simply because of the numbers and the complexity of the systems. One of the things that we are trying to do with the book and with the Creative Learners Project is provide some funding for the public school teachers in the communities and schools to help them to know what has worked in these uh, laboratory-type schools. And so if we can spread that knowledge into the pub those public schools, we feel like we can reach maybe some of those children who are not being reached. Would you talk about why you conclude Creative Learners with a chapter about the importance of stories? Just Saturday, I was with a young girl who's leaving the speech school and going off to the big another big school, all nervous. And there are stories in the book where a child had to leave that cocoon setting of the special school and go out into the big world and make her own way. And so the, the stories that come from experience 
are more valuable than all of the instructional books you can ever write about how to manage a learning difference. Author, educator, and advocate Selma Ridgeway. Her book is Creative Learner Stories of Inspiration and Success from People with Dyslexia, ADD, or Other Learning Differences. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian and writer Mark Kendall will be our guest. He'll host WABE's upcoming Mixtape Live Music Festival Sunday. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.